Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's podcast guest is Eric Usher. Eric is head of the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative. This initiative is a global partnership bringing together the UN with a global group of banks, insurers and investors working to develop the sustainable finance and responsible investment agendas. Eric oversees governance, strategy and the day-to-day management of the initiative's work programme and global network development. Over the years, the UNEPFI, as it's called, has established some of the most important sustainability-orientated frameworks within the finance industry, including the principles for responsible investment, the principles for sustainable insurance, and the principles for responsible banking. I'm really delighted to have with me today a new co-interviewer, Stephanie Glover, who works with We Are Guernsey. Um, I thought it'd be great before we get into our interview with Eric Usher to ask Steph to say a little bit about herself. So welcome, Steph, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about what you do and what drives you and your engagement with this platform? Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Josephine. I'm really thrilled to be speaking on the podcast. My name is Stephanie Glover. I am Head of Sustainable Finance at Guernsey Finance. My role is to develop and promote Guernsey's sustainable finance offering in terms of our financial services sector. I'm really driven in terms of sustainability and I love the sustainability and the sustainable finance movement. I think I'm really passionate about protecting nature before any irreversible damage is done to it from climate change. I live on an island and there's a small island in, in the middle of the channel. So I'm very aware of how severe weather can impact you know, an island's connectivity and our quality of life. But in Guernsey, we're so privileged to be protected and we have our financial services sector, which means we're a relatively wealthy island. But I want to ensure that we live in a world where other island nations who aren't quite as privileged as Guernsey can also live safely and connectively. I also have a bit of a vision of this utopian future, a net zero future, and what that looks like where we have electric vehicles, we have clean air, we have greater and more equal access to nature, which improves our mental health. And I I can't imagine why I wouldn't want to work towards that future. But my role at Guernsey Finance, it's really great to be able to create financial opportunities and mechanisms to work towards that dream. Wow, that's hugely impactful stuff. And I have to say, it's hugely inspiring to hear those words. And 
Uh, it makes me feel very privileged to have you as part of our Young Ambassadors Network. So, you know, welcome to our platform. And I really look forward to working with you further on these interviews. So let's go over to Eric now and, and, and ask him all our questions. So welcome, Eric, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Steph and I are absolutely delighted to have this time with you today. Thank you so much. We just thought we'd kick off with asking you about your role and your career to date and how you got to where you are. Well, uh, thanks very much, Josephine and Stephanie. Nice to, to be in discussion with you today. My current role is um, I head what's called the Unit Finance Initiative. So it's a longstanding partnership between the UN and the financial uh, services industry. We actually have our 30th year anniversary this year. Uh, we were created on the sidelines of the Rio Earth Summit back in 1992. A number of uh, banks and insurers attended that and for the first time started to become aware of this discussion between governments at the time around the notion of the early notion, I would say, of sustainable development and and decided they, they needed a means to be able to learn from and feed into those intergovernmental processes. In terms of recent history, uh, so UNIPFI has established the Principles Responsible Investment in 2006, the Principles Sustainable Insurance in 2012, and then most recently, the Principles for Responsible Banking. These are the, the, the main UN frameworks around essentially responsible conduct within the, the, the finance industry. <clears throat> and then, of course, under that, there's a lot of other more specific focused initiatives. Uh, what I think we'll get to talking today is under the GFANS, the, the Net Zero Alliances. In, in terms of what has brought me to this place, um, I actually I did not start in the banking industry or the finance industry. I started in the energy sector. Um, I'm Canadian. I was uh, initially doing uh, technology R&D and then specifically in the renewable sector and solar a uh, long time ago. I don't want to com- completely age myself, but it's uh, several decades back. And my whole career has very much focused on this public-private uh, relationship and really what, how far, what's the role of the private sector in uh, dealing with and helping deliver on public or social goods. So energy, electricity, what does a customer expect? Uh, what does a, a community expect? And what role can the, the a private actor play in delivering on energy services? Now, of course, today, when we think about energy, we can't not think about uh, climate and carbon. And then once again, you know, what is the relationship between public and private as we navigate away from high carbon intensive activities? How much of it needs to be uh, defined uh, by regulators? How much is it up to innovation from from private actors? And where is it we like to determine this sort of a dance between public and private as we help each other see our way forward? Well, I'd certainly love to get into that as we go through the podcast today, because that, that, as you say, that public-private aspect is hugely important to how we move forward to net zero. But maybe a great place for us to start, actually, given your presence at COP26, we're not that long out of it, actually. So there's certainly been time for reflection and contemplation of what COP delivered for us. Um, and given your, your presence there and, and contribution, perhaps you can share with us what, where you're at, where you're thinking is, what your observations are. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussions around COP half full, COP half empty. Out of COP, which really is the uh, national pastime, I think, for many out of every COP, and, and rightly those who aghast and say 26 of these meetings, um, how many more do we need to solve this problem? Uh, to some extent, they have some um, justification, I think, in, in um, uh, being impatient. 
However, I, you know, I think we take a pretty positive view on the progress made in Glasgow. It, it, it was not a Paris Agreement moment. It was not about you know, establishing a new um, uh, global framework, but it was really about um, you know, how do you put it in practice. And I think we'd have to acknowledge that since 2015, the signing of the Paris Agreement, there's been a lot of progress in, in the finance sector. We talk about green bonds. We talk about investments, in, for instance, in renewable energies, now in electric vehicles. However, the, the parts per million in the atmosphere of CO2 and other global warming gases continues to increase. So we, we can't acknowledge that we have a grasp on the overall problem, even if there has been progress in specific areas. I, I do believe that Glasgow, in some essence, um, can be a turning point. And really, it's worth shifting gears and where it's, it's moving away. Since Paris, we'd say everybody's been doing something great. But doing something is not enough to change essentially the business that one does. It's not about adding on a green bond to a most a non-green fixed income or bond portfolio. It's about the greenness of that whole portfolio. And the question is, what needs to be done to green an entire business and what steps need to be taken? And so I think out of GFAN's finance sector, there are a lot of announcements. Some people take um, you know, some of them as being you know, just that, not much more. <laughs> But I think it was very clear that the finance sector has stepped up. You know, this this mm-hmm. uh, mind-numbing figure of $130 trillion committing to net zero, very big numbers. What does it mean? Well, you have to break it down. And uh, we believe it's it's a very important step. And we've been very involved in, in um, getting that far. Of course, the real work starts now. And as Mark Hardy likes to say, now it's all about the plumbing. We do believe finance is at the table. It doesn't mean the deal is done. Yeah, I mean, we seem to be in a place where we can arrive at the bold ambitions, you know, and the science, the clear science, the IPCC report has been categorical, really, in uh, our contribution, uh, man's contribution, woman's contribution to, you know, a one degree temperature rise. So the, the, that, that sort of bold statementing and taking that to positive action seems to be where, again, as human beings, we're finding it very difficult to develop effective executable strategies that take us from A to B. We've got the alliances forming, which you referred to earlier, which certainly helped build some frameworks and some convergence of thought about how we might do that. What is it that are the blockers in terms of pace and scale of deployment, taking us from those bold statements to action on the ground, the plumbing, if you like? I mean, obviously, there are a lot of barriers that need to be overcome. And um, there are a lot of actors who need to be at the table, many of whom are, are only there you know, with one foot so far. They still straddle essentially what is knowing that you know, we need to push forward, but also you know, trying to um, continue with, let's say, a business as usual, because there's an economic model that allows them to do that. It's legal to make money from bursting fossil fuels. And there are a lot of actions that unless serious changes are taken, will continue to allow the status quo to operate. And so if we, if we look at the issues like divestment, which is a very important tool and quite powerful in some ways, mm. part of the challenge is if you can get an investor to divest from an oil and gas company, let's say one of the big ones, and you can get that company to divest from an oil field, 
which has happened is happening to some extent. The reality is if it's still economically legal and viable to dig up that oil, somebody's going to do it. And mm-hmm. as, as Larry Fink pointed out, yeah. you know, um, if we just pass on these assets from the very transparent public markets into the private markets or, or other parts of the economic mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. where someone can still legally dig the stuff up and burn it, then very likely it's going to happen. And so as, as Mark Carney would point out, finance doesn't fill a policy void. And therefore, some of the actors at the table, definitely finance has to be there. But of course, we need the politicians there. We need big industry. We need civil society. And I think we, we certainly, I think all actors at the table are not perfect. And some of those imperfections allow a lot of room for these activities to continue operating that need to be shut. I mean, it's really about responsible divestment, isn't it, within the context of the energy transition and a just transition. Um, We've had lots of conversations in Guernsey about how divestment can often be seen as just passing the buck to someone who cares less than you do. And we want to make sure that's not happening. That's right. It's one tool in the toolbox. You know, it's one thing. It cannot be used as the only tool. Of course, um, I think used responsibly, you know, combined with engagement, combined with um, policy action, then of course it can it's it's part of a bigger picture. And and certainly there's a strong messaging component and there is some power in in the in the signal that's being sent. But it, it's certainly on its own, it's not going to solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the the, the market signals in the in themselves clearly aren't sufficient to drive a divestment or responsible divestment strategy, one would suggest. At the same time, you've got clear market signals that suggest, you know, effective ESG strategies and the generation of alpha within those investments um, is a positive, you know, attractor to uh, investment into the green sector, but both not working. I mean, they're not working in tandem, <laughs> clearly, because capital is not moving fast enough. Yeah. You know, do you think there's a role then for um, regulation to accelerate that? Given, you know, again, we've referred to Mark, some of Mark Carney's, you know, thinking the uh, investment time horizons you know that that we need to work towards a much shorter uh to to decarbonize and we look at 2030 trajectory let alone 2050 i can't see how we're going to get there without very significant acceleration of capital yet the market itself isn't moving at the pace we'd like to see yeah i think um absolutely smart regulation is needed and then we have to break it down between regulation and the real economy so in energy and transport in in um you know, all sectors of the economy and regulations in the financial system. And regulations in the financial system on their own, they're they're not, they can't do enough to to address the all of these real economy issues. But of course they play a role. And there, there certainly are some uh, some regulatory blockages, financial regulations today, which do make it more difficult. And we just have to look at Basel and solvency and the like to see how the the the, the push towards uh, deleveraging, you know, getting away from longer-term finance, which does make it difficult for um, you know infrastructure, which um, carbon climate action often will will require longer tenor um, financing, and that's hard to come by in, in the current setup. So certainly there are improvements that should be made, but um, they also obviously have to happen in the real economy. I think one of the positives coming into to uh, Glasgow 
has been there because if we once again if we go back to 2015 we think of mark carney with the tragedy of horizon and that tragedy as he presented it then was because in paris we we're talking about stabilizing emissions by end of century and this tragedy was that you know the financial sector the, the private sector does not have an investment horizon that aligns with end of century so so we will not take um, rational economic decisions today towards um, uh, an issue which is a century out or 80 years out. I think what's happened, though, between Paris and Glasgow is, well, in 2019, first we had the IPCC report, and then 2019, we started to talk about net zero by 2050. So not end of century, but by mid-century. That's the focus point. And then since 2019, things have really accelerated to the point, uh, for instance, you know, the, the UK coming into to COP, you know, announced their, uh, what is it, 78% emissions reduction by 2030, did I get that right? Many countries are more in the 50% range. Even more important than targets is, for instance, in the UK and in the EU and many places that um, uh, internal combustion engines are going to be phased out by 2030, 2035. So all of a sudden, the investment time frame or, or the time frame of this these phase outs comes into the investment cycle. So, so essentially, the tragedy of Horizon is no longer there because uh, we make a capital investment. Already, we can see the need to potentially write it down if there's going to be a potential stranded asset. So, I, I think the the uh, the policy actions, setting targets is important, but then how do you translate targets into real actions? And doing that within a time frame that is really relevant to the financial sector. I think funds are doing that enough at the moment. If we're thinking about, you know, a typical eight-year fund, if it started now, you know, in, in eight years, it will be 2030. Are, are they ready to close out in 2030 yet with the kind of net zero ambitions? Yeah, I mean, it certainly it becomes clearly material, and and uh, uh, and this is this is the upsurge of um, why so much attention is being paid. So I, I think there is a lot of in terms of was. Glasgow success or how full. I believe it's the case from what we're reading and I think you're seeing in terms of the, the financial actors, how seriously they're paying attention. And I would say in terms of senior leadership from a Larry Fink to um, Brian Winahan at Bank of America or Anna Bettina Santander, they've rolled up their sleeves and through GFANS and otherwise, they understand these issues because they realize their, their organization's success and their own jobs now um, uh, depend on them getting this right and essentially not adding on a little bit of green at the edges and putting it in an ICSR report. It's about essentially how are they going to change their businesses? How are they going to work with their clients to change their businesses? Yeah, so there's a multitude of pressure points there, aren't there? Clearly top down, but clearly, uh, you know, the man on the street, the woman on the street is also applying pressure. If not regulation, obviously there are many alliances that the, the UN has been at the heart of instigating, and you've mentioned uh, a number of them at the start. Again, very clear and bold ambition and, and very positive intent to create change within the, the industry, financial industry subsectors, insurance, banking, uh, asset owners, asset managers and the like with net zero ambitions. Can you say a little bit about how you're seeing those alliances um, mature in their thinking and also how you see them being instigators of change? So within GFANS, there are seven main alliances. Uh, we convened three of them. The 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 first one, which is the... Um, Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, we co-convened that with the PRI, and it was launched in 2019. And then the Net Zero Insurance Alliance and the Net Zero Banking Alliance. 
uh, I can speak a little bit about them separately. The, the Acidone Alliance is by far the most developed, and they, in the lead up to Glasgow, they had already issued what they call the target setting protocol, which is essentially is the framework. We, we would sort of call it the Paris rule book, if you know the, the climate negotiations, of how you set targets and how you report on those targets. And the, the real differentiator was they set 2025 as their first milestone uh, goal. And they started to issue their targets. So about half of the um, alliance members had already issued by the time of COP. It depended when they joined, but essentially they had to. Uh, those who launched in um, 2019 had to issue before Glasgow. And the, the reductions are have to align, or they have to be based on a um, scientific scenario. So essentially the PCC yeah. or the IEA scenarios. And they, they have to align. So by 2025, it means that essentially it means reductions of what were initially between 16 and 29% across the portfolio. Most of their individual um, targets that they've set are between the 25 and 30%. So it's uh, down in four years time. So it's quite significant. Uh, Since now in January, so just last month, they've now issued the second version uh, upgrade or addition of their target setting protocol, which starts to add in new asset classes like um, infrastructure. Interesting, they brought in uh, Sovereign for the first time, which we know is a big, complicated area. So they're going, um, they, they, they um, listed equities, um, uh, public debt, uh, or, um, uh, and, and real estate have been covered previously. So one by one, they're coming in and they're saying, well, what is a framework of how we're gonna get reductions within a certain asset class? So that's the Asset Owner Alliance, um, more advanced. Um, the Net Zero Banking Alliance is, is interesting in a couple ways. Uh, first of all, it's very big. Um, well, it's a little over 100 banks, but they're the big banks. Together, they account for about 43% of global banking assets. Um, and interestingly, it includes the 10 largest banks in Europe. Not so surprising. Europe is you know, typically very advanced. Uh, but it includes also the 10 largest banks in North America. So all the big American banks. All the big Canadian banks, and, and as, as a Canadian, um, you know, we're a resource-based economy. Those banks um, have a, a lot of, of heavy fossil fuel assets on their on their balance sheets, on their in their loan books. Um, it includes the seven of the ten largest banks in Latin America, and so on. So it's a very global um, group. Um, they have set their targets because it was uh, launched just last year on 2030. Their first interim targets. And they are in the process of starting to issue. And by the time of COP27, most of them need to really issue their, their first set of targets. Uh, I think seven of the banks have already issued. City came out about 10 days ago with theirs, targeting 65% emissions reduction uh, in power sector by 2030, and 29%, I believe, in the energy sector. So, you know, when you're talking about over 60% reductions um, across the power sector, in a, uh, a bank that operates in well, over 100 countries, and this is a global target, it's very significant. Um, of course, this is not a couple people within City who've come up with this. Thousands of people have been involved in um, essentially uh, setting the targets. But to come to your question now, Josephine, I think the most important thing is not setting targets, it's, it's implementing. And, and this is uh, now, and, and as the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres pointed out uh, and announced in Glasgow, um, and he is, he announced that he was establishing a, a high-level expert group on um, ensuring the integrity of these net zero um, commitments. Essentially, what does it mean 
we we have the race to zero, um, uh, which is the the sets the um, the criteria for these commitments, and they're they're quite rigorous in terms of what a commitment is. But a commitment is simply that a target is just a target, and the question: How do you report on it? How do you do it with integrity? Yeah. Who verifies? Um, a lot of steps need yeah. to be taken. So I think it's good that the financial sector has stepped up through GFANS yeah. um, in Glasgow, but of course, a lot of work needs to be done to follow. And 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 with universal investors across very complex operational and legal structures, you know, as as to your point on integrity and ascertaining uh, the quality of execution on those commitments is hugely complex and time consuming. Uh, and I certainly don't uh, underestimate that. On the in the same hand, you know, you, you're at the risk of um, you know, we call it greenwashing, but not you know Absolutely. not having integrity. And, 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 and there's a huge ecosystem of new companies and innovations being set up to um, you know, essentially drive the data revolution that we need. And um, you know, all of the bits and pieces where the, you know, the main financial actors, they will set essentially these are their business targets, but they need a lot of help to follow through. And part of it's gonna come from the standard setters. A lot of it is gonna come from innovation. And, and quite quickly, as we saw from you know, a couple of companies who have been heavily criticized Deserving or not, um, I don't think a position recently, but the fact that regulators have opened investigations into them in the U.S. and Germany into ESG, um, you know, accusation of greenwashing. I think what's really remarkable here is the fact that regulators are actually doing that, that they're paying attention. And, you know, everybody's going to be very aware of what they're doing, the announcements that they're making, even though these are voluntary still within regulated financial markets, you have to be careful, you know, how you describe. And, and most of them will basically say, we need more help. We need more um, systems for, for standardizing the data. And therefore, the other announcement in, in Glasgow about the establishment of the, under the IFRS Foundation of the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, that's very important. And everybody would say, you know, data standards are missing, it's, it's messy, uh, we need to go from hundreds of different standards um, into an aggregation. And uh, so high expectations there, although it's a tough one. So it will take some time to sort. Yeah. And confidence in the infrastructure that um, means that things are um, standardized and comparable and easily accessible and understood. Absolutely. The way we should go forward, have wider, wider uh, adoption. Um, given the complexity of some of this and, I guess the burden on financial institutions to be leaders in this space. Do you think the balance of that burden is is right within the economy? The you know the the cost and the the reputational risk uh, for financial institutions is not insignificant to get this right and be yeah. leaders. Yeah. I mean, this, this comes back to what I had mentioned at the very beginning that we believe uh, we, we we don't want to predict whether regulations are going to drive um, you know, anything. Yeah, it's a very complicated issue, and obviously regulations will be very important. But those who basically say whatever the financial sector does is worthless until regulators come in and tell people what to do, the problem is not going to get solved. We don't believe in that because, of course, regulations are important. But regulating this industry, like other industries, like uh, IT, uh, uh, like uh, social networking, have we seen, regulators can't do it on their own. And so essentially what we believe is that you need, we call it, as I mentioned, this dance between 
um, actions from the public and private sector, each basically showing how they believe it should be done and sending a signal to the other. So we think that if you take the TCFD as an example, that was a voluntary framework under the G20 to start disclosing on, on climate risk. And for a couple of years, from 2017 to last year, more or less, there has been a pretty good uptake of climate risk disclosure voluntarily coming from the finance industry and from the corporates generally. Good breadth, the depth is not sufficient. And so essentially, it got the market going. Now regulators are starting to step in as we started with New Zealand and then UK and then you know Europe, of course, and even the SEC in the US. Um, where they are starting to say, okay, we've learned from what the private sector has done voluntarily. Now we're going to start to ratchet up and we're going to standardize the types of scenarios, analysis you should be doing, the stress testing, et cetera. One more announcement, which was incredibly important, was UK um, uh, announcing um, that they will expect UK corporates to start issuing transition plans. Because once again, comply or explain, they're not saying how to do it initially. But they're telling corporates and obviously financial actors that we expect that that um, all companies need to start giving to the market forward guidance on what what essentially their business model is going to be within this transition. So essentially, the net zero um, voluntary net zero commitment starts to no longer be a voluntary action. Um, it's still very open how you do it. So we're in a learning phase. Voluntarily, let's lean in. Let's start to do it. But the regulators are basically saying, we're going to start watching. As a starting point, we expect you to start giving the right messaging around this. And over time, the expectations are going to start to ratchet. And therefore, now is the time to actually prove it out from the from the financial sector, from the private sector side. Are the expectations that it's kind of going to be the larger banks, the larger asset managers that are driving this? So where the kind of the smaller you know, jurisdictions like Guernsey or well, the I think smaller it's, you're asset right, managers but, um, fit into that program? You know, in the end, change the financial system is a very complicated one with a lot of moving parts. And I think um, before when when this stuff was all sort of inch deep, we can use, you know, essentially, you, know, you put in your CSR report, then essentially, you know, it was quite easy to do it. Everybody could have um, a CSR team. Um, um, and, um, uh, and obviously the biggest institutions with the biggest visibility, it was most important to get that right. I think now the much more holistic view is it's about everything you do. Um, so essentially, even down to the SMEs, the expectation is you actually have to, have to understand your business and how your business is going to change, is going to have to change. And, mm-hmm. and, and if you take you know, Guernsey and the role it plays within the financial system, um, uh, you know, it, it plays a very specific tranche of value added to the system, and that tranche is going to be changing as well. And of course, there's going to be, um, as we call those who uh, change makers and change takers. And I think it's very important that particularly as things are in a lot of flux to be a change maker. And, and I think that would apply to, to a financial center like Guernsey, like with any others, to, just to understand, you know, what is what are these changes going to require? As we know, the financial system has very little own direct emissions yeah yeah and, and, and smes will have to think through you know do i have a financeable proposition uh, and business strategy am i insurable um as i move forward um having a very clear transition strategy is certainly going to help deliver the right signals to those financial market um 
participants. I mean, it's a hugely dynamic um, environment, uh, as you have said, with lots of moving parts and quite difficult and complex sometimes to to grapple with how I as an individual or how I as a small, medium-sized enterprise um, sort of participate. The role of financial institutions is hugely persuasive, isn't it, within that sphere, because there's a lot that can be learned from following that role modelling um, and taking signals from those financial you know, market participants. I mean, if you look at that sort of um, risk side of the market, because it's a risk, isn't it, if you don't engage and you don't participate and the assessment of risk within that, I mean, given those pressure points on the financial institutions, um, and it's it's about where they're going as much as where climate change is going and understanding your own business. Um, what can you say about that and your assessment of risk? I mean, I would say one of the evolutions, you know, the investment community has often been first to understand, you know, many of these issues going back decades and part of the theory, obviously, is asset owners are at the top of the, of the financial chain. Well, their beneficiaries are. But, you know, in theory, if you can get a, a big asset owner, a big insurer or a pension fund to take a decision, it can ripple down to the system. Yes, but the reality is a lot of what we were talking about today is a lot of the change is in terms of client relationships. And investors don't have client relationships the way banks do. Uh, banks actually know a lot more about a business because they have a lot more confidential information than a, a public investor does. And a bank's value is in their client relationships. The same thing for an insurer. An insurer has an, has an investment business where they invest largely in the, in the public markets, but they also have an insurance underwriting business. And in that insurance underwriting, um, they have a lot more information to understand their clients to, to assist their clients in making this transition. And a lot of the value of the insurer is those client relationships. So I think we've evolved. Of course, the role of the investor continues to be critical, but now we're at the point where actually the role of the, the client relationship, this is, so if you think of a bank, we're talking about millions and millions of relationships with SMEs, with corporates, et cetera. All of those have to be fit for purpose in discussing what does it take to actually understand the risks, you know, Ending what what's going to change in the environment in terms of physical climate risks, in terms of policy change, technological innovations, and, and the opportunity. And, and this is what we hear from the banks these days. What really excites them, one thing, they're worried about the risks, but they'll actually realize that their clients need to decarbonize or, or to become you know, resilient to, to, to climate change. That requires a lot of investment, a lot of financing. <laughs> so it's a risk, but it's an opportunity. Um, and actually, it's a really nice point on the power of the individual uh, and not just corporate engagement or financial institution engagement. Everybody talks about stewardship engagement now is not least Larry Fink, but, you know, it's, it's about the power of the individual then, isn't it, when it comes down to client client relationships. Um, just just a, a, a last question from me before Steph's last question, um, just around um, how we direct finance into innovation because there's a lot of commitment that has been made there within the alliance um you know articulations of what they're going to do the the pace at which that's happening and understanding the risks and rewards with that yeah. seems to be a little bit slow how, how do we make that happen uh, a little bit faster yeah i would think all of everything you know everything needs to focus more i think part of the reality is 
who finances innovation. And, and often it's not the biggest players, even though maybe they have a role in it. But if we if we think of the um, the alternative markets, um, we are seeing you know progress from from the big private equity houses. But I think there's a lot to do. And in terms of the the, the venture capital venture capital industry is actually doing fairly well these days, um, largely in other industries, but to some extent um, um, in uh, in tech and something like Tesla. Uh, so and they're very bullish on uh, the, the opportunities in this sector. I, I mean, obviously, one of the problems is um, climate is quite different from IT, or at least in terms of, you know, it's not a Facebook in the sense that once you produce it, it doesn't run for free. So essentially, it is very financially capital intensive. So the the ability to get a big bang for your buck in terms of, you know, you write the code and then you sell it a million times, that doesn't really happen in, in carbon intensive sectors. Mm. Um, uh, however, uh, I mean, there once again, you know, visibility, you know, if we look at the food system, you know, I, I started in the renewable energy industry. It was a joke of an industry at the time. Nobody's laughing about it. Nobody's laughing about electric vehicles. Nobody's even laughing about the food system today, you know, um, yeah. which obviously poses a lot of challenges because there's there's huge um, risks in transition in terms of social risks as well. But, you know, there's not a single industry that's safe to this transition. Um, and so I think in terms of fostering innovation, yeah. when everybody's involved, everybody's aware, that's probably the, 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 the number one challenge. Then, of course, there has to be a lot of uh, innovation also in, in the financial services to help drive that. I think it's still, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of sophistication in different financial markets. Um, is it enough? Probably not. Mm. Um, uh, is there one solution to, to uh, you know, one new type of products? No, of course not. It's going to have to be much more broad than that. And a lot of the innovation is going to be dry, driven, I think, from market incumbents. So we're going to need some new Teslas, but we're going to need a lot of these existing companies to actually figure out how to uh, uh, renew themselves. And, um, you know, once they feel the pressure to do so, which we believe they do today, it creates a lot of uh, potential for innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a question around COP26, which had a really large youth program and youth participation. How can the youth movement stay positive and optimistic about climate change, given all the eco-anxiety? But also, what's the best way for the youth movement to support the UN? Is it through climate protests? Is it through working in the finance industry? And how can we work collaboratively together? I mean, I think it's, once again, it's all of the above. Um, you know, the Greta Thunbergs um, and and um, the Fridays for Future and, and the many other initiatives certainly have played a very important role of calling out um, the blah, 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 as, as Greta would say. And I think that continues to be needed, not only by the finance industry, but certainly by politicians and, and corporates. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously a very important role. I think, though, um, uh, we have to, the power of both the consumer, but also the employee. And as we know, you know, for companies to attract good talent, um, the influence that the young people have on um, um, challenging companies, particularly older companies, have a, a hard time um, attracting uh, good talent these days and therefore are quite open. I, I wouldn't say it's the, the greater approach within companies so much, but it's basically positive engagement of, and we would say basically, you know, companies, the the um, the attractiveness or the, the, the need to become purpose-driven organizations 
um, now is no longer something you only find in the, you know, the nonprofit sector or the impact investing. Now, this is something very relevant to um, any bank, um, any investor today. And I think um, uh, you know, the youth are seen as probably the ones who help drive the notion of purpose, I think, in most direct ways. So I, I do believe that um, there's a need, and I guess there's a question of is it best, is it best to um, realize change from the outside or from within, and I think it's both that are needed. Uh, the pressure potentially comes from um, outside, but the solutions have to come from within largely. And, and I think the, the youth has to be on all sides of that. I, I do believe that you know, the financial services industry, its reputation post-global financial crisis, you know, what is it, 12, 12 years ago, they really dropped into the doldrums for good reason. You know, the financial system was, you know, the reason that they, the, um, you know, they pulled down large parts of the global economy and had you know, very negative impacts on, on society. Um, it, I think improvements have been made now. Um, I mean, the, the COVID crisis has been terrible in any way, in many ways, but the financial system has played its role, I think, in helping keep the lights on in terms of keeping the economy functioning. That's both the, the public and the private parts of the financial system. And I think the, if you look in the, for instance, the Bertelsmann Index, you see the financial system is actually starting to improve in terms of view, in terms of, of the trust in the industry. Now, maybe that's because other industries have <laughs> have slipped uh, behind and you would think of, of um, you know, for instance, in, in IT. Um, but um, I, I do believe with this renewed mandate around helping society decarbonize and address you know, probably the largest global issue of our times, um, that's something that drives purpose. And I think when you drive purpose, you actually can drive, you can become a place that people want to work at. And, and essentially, this is what the youth are going to be attracted to, but are also going to help holding companies to account. Thank you for that. I'll definitely make sure I go and ask all the companies I work with what their purpose is. A good commitment there, Steph. Uh, look, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm so sorry we don't have more time because there's so many questions I'd love to ask. But Steph and I really appreciate um, your contribution and time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Justin.